0: Welcome to Game of Books podcast. I'm Kathy in South Dakota and I'm Christy in South Florida. We're two newbie writers who share our love of food, wine, and mystery through interviews with best-selling and award-winning authors and our virtual
1: book club and even our fun writing lessons with writing experts. Join us on today's adventure. Welcome to Game of Books podcast, Quarks in Conversation with Danny Gardner.
0: Yep nice to be back at the mic and nice to see you as well over Zoom. Christy, yep. how are things down in Florida?
1: Well, things are um, hot and stormy, which is pretty normal. The most normal thing for September 2020, I would say. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like the beginning of a mystery novel. The most normal
0: <laughs> thing is it's
1: hot and stormy. <laughs> um, so how's it in South Dakota?
0: Um, it's actually really cool here, um, like really cool, like in the 40s. But yesterday, my mother in law out in the ranch in the Black Hills went from 101, two days later, it snowed.
1: <laughs> that's like, crazy.
0: That's like, yeah, she's feeling like it's a bit of a thriller out there, too, I think.
1: Anyway. Great. Okay, well, go ahead. Why don't you introduce our guest today, Kathy? It is my pleasure.
0: Okay, so we are here today with Danny Gardner, author of Ace. Boone Coon, the second in the Tales of the Elliot Caprice series, um, and it takes place in 1950s Illinois, so it's a historical crime fiction. Um, in this installment, Elliot has returned to help his uncle save the family farm, but things don't go very smoothly for poor, poor Elliot, um, as, <laughs> as racial tensions um, between the agricultural workers rise. Murder pulls Elliot back to Chicago, where he used to be a cop, and he finds himself in between just a few problems, you know, just, I'll be anxious to ask Danny about how he created all this, but Elliot finds himself in between Jewish and Negro organized crime factions, then there's the mounting pressures between some federal agents investigating organized crime, Nation of Islam, and this shadowy force called the White Circle League, they all are closing in. And Elliot's got a race uh, to connect this money trail that's out there to two more murders in order to um, stop all this disaster and save himself, of course. (laughs) Just a few things going on for Elliot. Yeah, just a few. (laughs) So Danny, it's so nice to talk with you today.
2: Hi, great, thanks for having
0: me. Hey, so you're joining us from California?
2: Yes. Uh Southern California where it's not on fire at present, but sometimes it might just break out. So you know
0: <laughs> if if you run, is that what has happened?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Literally if you're ashy and you rub your knees together, you could start a forest fire in California. <laughs> <laughs> As far well, let's-
0: hope we can make it through the next half an hour. Yeah, right. (laughs) Yes. All right, so before we get started with the big questions, let's talk about the really important
1: stuff, the wine. Yes, (laughs) yes. So we're drinking a Sancerre. Yes. You sent a beautiful picture. You have a Jean-Jacques Aucherre Sancerre. Jean-Jacques (laughs) Aucherre Sancerre. That's right. That you found at Costco. So is that what you're drinking?
2: Yeah, yeah, I am. And in fact, like, if you know me and know me very well, Jean-Jacques O'Shea Sancerre is like some... Something I'd just be cool saying just because it sounds yeah. like a homie. Like I, I, you know, I don't know. I took six years of French in Chicago public schools. I can't translate none of this for you. Jean Jacques Oshare Sancerre. it's like ramen. It's got a little float. Yeah,
1: to it. I know. Well, yeah, well, we didn't, we didn't have the Jean Jacques Sancerre
2: Yeah, down here. <laughs> Put all that into it though. Hey, you gotta do your neck instead.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so instead, my, I had a friend who went to Costco. She's a, she's a Francophile, which she's wondering why you picked this Sancerre because she's like, I've been to serre Why is he picking Sancerre? But what I got is the Charles de Bourges Sancerre. And it's yeah. also under 20. It was at Costco here in Florida. So oh,
2: yeah. yeah, you could grab that at uh, at the Whole Foods in Southern California. You can see that. Oh really?
1: There. We got Whole Foods here too. Poor Kathy up there is just like, not <laughs> like, ready to send you to a, you know. South Dakota has neither I'm pretty uh, limited
2: here in my options you know what South Dakota has it what? has potential that's what it that's has. Right. it's gonna have everything one day we got our
1: fingers crossed we do I will be playing this for my local and only liquor store in town one wow. store <laughs> But you're yeah. drinking a Sauvignon Blanc, which is oh, yeah. basically what a salcert is, only less fancy. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh well.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Cheers. It's Cheers. Cheers. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Good Cheers. choice, Danny. Yeah.
2: Okay. I'm a drinking author.
0: That's right. Mm-hmm. It makes it all so much more enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> see me? I'm
2: feeling better with each sip. Okay. Guys.
1: <laughs> we find that with a lot of the authors, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I want to
0: talk about this book. Okay, it is a wild ride. <laughs> okay. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This yeah.
2: is
0: like you think things are bad, and then they turn the page, and it's like this got worse.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's um, you know, oh, okay. So 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 we laugh about it and we joke about it, um. But then you know, if we think about life, we think about these slippery slopes and then tipping points, right? So it's just it just takes that one or two things to mm-hmm. hit you, you know, rapid fire, that you know puts you, you know, at the tipping point, and then all someone has to do is come along and change your mortgage rates, and it's like ah 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 like that, right? And mm-hmm. so you know, I heard the first book in the series, uh, you know, a Negro and Ofe, a family tale, soon to be on <laughs> Lifetime Television. Uh, <laughs> no, but like, Next know,
0: hallmark like, mystery.
2: Right, right. Like, see, okay. What I'd like to do with my novels is to root them in the privilege of reading itself, which is you had to be a particular class and you had to be a particular race in many in many cases to even get a hold of books necessary to provide your frame of reference with the perspective to know what may be happening to you from within the political mm-hmm. you know, landscape. Correct. Well, so because right. poor people are always the labor that interchange. Right, like you know, mm-hmm. General Motors get more of them guys that used to work for Peugeot than you know uh, Ford can't have. Them. So it's always this game to get people to wander over here and give us your right. cheaper labor. No, wander over here and give us your cheaper labor. But like you know, you can go wandering in search of something, but like, your life follows you, okay? And so mm-hmm. you know, you are a, a, a hey man, you're a black person, and and you know you got a. Uh, a chance to go to college, but then, you know, you also got buddies of yours that keep you fed and safe and happy and healthy and they're going to prison and you got to watch their back. And then, you know, you got this other brother, you know, you never know, anytime your other shoe can drop, you got to go bail your other brother out. But nobody wants to hear about that crap when it's SAT taking time, but you got bullies going to your school. Half of them are the white boy bullies because they don't want you in a private school, but you gotta get through a mile against the disciples to even get to the bus to get to school. And then and then you realize you got spinach in your teeth when your favorite <laughs> girl that you always want to date looks at you for the first time. Like
1: That's true, I mean, it's it's human.
2: Who doesn't live that way, right? But what I think, and this is interesting, and I'm trying to get this through, like, you know, the subtle comedy, the darker humor, the gallows mm-hmm. humor, is that, like, people expect Black folks just don't have complex lives, that we all just, after 400 years, mm-hmm. to sitting around playing banjos, waiting on the bad, <laughs> next bad thing to happen to us. Like, we got stuff in mind already. We, right. Hey, I don't want to fix all that for you. I kind of want y'all to fix it. And then I just want to go over here and write these books, but I got to put all this on my back just to have a conversation about it. uh, Yeah, but you get it. Like, listen, if you were Polish and there wasn't no Black folks around and there was some Irish cats across the street that had been there 20 years longer than you, you'd be the N-word in that situation.
1: Right. Right. So,
2: like, I wanted to just envelop Elliot Caprice's life into the context of, yeah, people are marching, people Mm -hmm. are fighting, people are begging, and it's still someone's job to take out the dang on garbage. Still got to do the job to get somebody to school. You know, you got to yeah. get them string beans out the ground. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what else is going on. And we get caught up into what else is going on because the newness of social media. But once that slows down and dies down, you know, everybody's story is going to start sounding similar if we start admitting that um you know, it's a lot less of you know, hot and hot, kind of anthropological. Ooh, look at the blacks, and it's more like, Wow, I had no idea a black person could have a life that sounds just like my life, right? right. That's what I'm trying to get through. Uh, so, yeah, right. It comes at you, it waits, it waits. Man, listen, your boss ain't like Mitzi Shore ain't never coming to the comedy store except that one night I couldn't get there in time. You did, <laughs> yeah.
1: Like,
2: I'm just telling you, yeah. like, but that happens to everyone, and that's what right. I would suggest,
1: yeah.
0: Okay, so I. 1950s Illinois, right? Mm-hmm. You r- really paint a vivid picture of what it's like, rural and urban. Yeah. And there is, you know, poverty and there's economic disparity and there's racial tensions rising. And Elliot's got all this going on. Right. It felt like I was there in 1950s Illinois, but it also feels freakishly modern and current.
2: I- I'm a funny kid, right? Because I'm 49. Right, I'll be fifty in February.
0: Just turned fifty. Just I just turned.
2: turned. Well, you wouldn't tell.
0: <laughs> I know. You're I wear a badge. A badge. Nah,
2: you you're good. You got to trade them with me. I got I keep them like box tops and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, right. So I'm. I was born in 1971 in Chicago in a neighborhood called Washington Heights, which was uh of a, a, like a middle class Jewish enclave before folks started abscond in the, uh, like Skokie, Illinois, and then started building political ties with the Middle East because of the development of Israel. And so um, my grandfather was you know, a pretty connected dude. And uh, I didn't realize how dope and idyllic my lifestyle was. And I didn't realize that uh, forces were being held back constantly in order for me to enjoy like an amazing idyllic experience. So. I didn't see heroin addicts on the street when policing was cut in neighborhoods that decided they wanted more voice in the Chicago political machine. So mm-hmm. how about we just slow down patrols? How about when the gangbangers come through and start recruiting their kids, we got less footwalkers walking around. Like, I just remember when it was stuff like that. And so, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you know, Chicago was a city that was founded by like a Haitian dude who convinced some native Americans, he was their Catholic King. All the way from
1: Haiti. Like, really, you know I never knew that.
2: Yeah, like that. yeah. Like, listen, man, he's the founder of the for the granddaddy of us all, who lived there. You know, he's a, a descendant of African slaves, right? So, you know, that's a big deal. But at the same time, you got to be pretty slick to slow show up to some Chicago Indians and convince them we're all that trading on the where the Lake Michigan meets the Chicago, Chicago River. River. Right. Like, so you got that, and you black, and you first, and so. You know, we all had to get in where we fit in, and we all have to find a slice. And, you know, once you get far enough along into your 50 years, you can see a pattern in the way economic policy creates tensions that bankers are really never around to witness and try to ameliorate once all of the money valuation has ceased. And that's a problem for all of us. Like, somebody takes a grease pencil. Draws a red line. Now all of a sudden this Irish family lives across the street from this ghetto because there's too many blacks on the other side of the line and go find them for half of your equity. It's mm-hmm. like, it. uh, no, actually you running off with bags of money and my neighbors across the, yeah, but then, you know, our schools are teaching us how to be better brick players. Our schools are teaching us how to be, better. You, you dig? So
1: you're
2: right. Oh yeah. It's blind spot. And if it works on Negroes, then Polish folks is gonna work for less than they're worth every, every, every hour. Right. And so You know, like, it's just this constant 50-year, let's reboot everything. Hollywood only knows how to make us butlers, and Obama just left. <laughs> I, mean, I ain't looking at a Harriet Tubman biopic and the first Black First Lady just left after four years. a looking and sounding better than everybody else. I just, you know, I grew up with Cicely Tyson being doggone Harriet Tubman, man. Move me on in the book. I'm trying to get to the back chapters, man. You know? Right. You know, it's just, we've done this before. It feels new because we love these greatest hits we keep playing. Right. But with the digital space, like, you know, we can't get into a conversation about Chester Himes because one out of three mystery readers who are white have never heard of him and one out of five who are black have never heard of him because his copyrights sit dusty because he died old and lonely in Mm -hmm. Spain because it was too hard for him to get back to the United States. So then it's a little hard to have a conversation about who's the greatest mystery writer when we've forgotten about most of them we just had 50 years ago. But in right. digital space, nothing gets deleted in 50 years. George Lucas isn't gonna own my grandfather's newspaper, the Chicago Daily Defender, because they couldn't find who owned it because nobody cares to check in with black people about things. In a hundred years, they're gonna be printing Ace Boone Coon on Mars, and maybe we won't forget we're all Americans and some of us are black. But for right. now, out of we're looking at a 50-year pivot where if you a woman and you angry at America, well, you can be the first woman writing about these issues. The first what? Yeah. Or yeah. you I can be, you know, they, they you know, with the Walter Mosley thing. Nobody knows nothing else about nothing but like Walter. Like it's just like I like Walter. Every time Walter see me, he look at me all mean. I'm like, I ain't the one saying the dog. Oh, they just don't know nobody else. My fault. Like, right? So <laughs> I, but, I think with technology, I think with these these bad boys and girls, right? Right. It's kind of hard to burn that in a bonfire when you don't want somebody to read it anymore.
0: Danny, when did you start writing this installment Ooh. of Elliot Caprice?
2: That's a good story because I wrote two books at the same time, not knowing why I was right. Well, so um, the first book, uh, Negro on the No, is like this whole kind of like singularity where I didn't know if I could write a novel. I took this screenplay I sold to DreamWorks once. It got handed back to me when they sold to somebody else, and uh, you know I was feeling bad. Well, that's
1: impressive though. At least you sold it.
2: Yeah, it was a hip pocket thing. Like my like my man always liked my writing. He was an associate. Then he got a producing slot, and then he needed material mm-hmm. and he liked the dialogue. And you know they like you know he put it on a stack of like ten scripts and was like, "Hey, all right, kid, this is your shot. What do you got?" And he was like, "I got these," and I was like the third script in the stack. So, you know, I was good as long as he was good. But yeah. when he got it was like, well, nobody knows you. But Hollywood like, sucks. But, but the best education I got for a year on, like, how that works. And I was cool because I was too young. I, I wouldn't, I don't think I would have did right with the opportunity. I was a little too much of a... I, I was professional when I had to go work for other people to make the rent. But when it comes to, like, marrying my art and my professional potential, I was kind of like, yeah, well, I, I'm trying to be Jimi Hendrix. and it, it didn't work out. <laughs> Anyway, I kind of forgot what you asked me about. What is that over? <laughs> uh,
0: you had said you were uh, writing both books at the same
2: time. I oh, asked I I, so I was writing what's going to be the next Tales of Elliot Caprice, which is uh, the Tales of Elliot Caprice Girl Friday is the title. Okay. And you can tell with these titles, I'm like trying to irk people's sensibilities. Yeah. Because <laughs> right? like A Negro in an Ofe, the first book, there's a racial slur on the cover, but it ain't about black folks.
0: Yeah, and I had to look it up. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I know. I know. It's, it's like a, you know, it's an insight. Like, I used to call them joke bombs when I used to do stand up. Like if I can make you like not laugh in the club, but wake up the next night and go, man, that was funny. Like <laughs> it just sits with you for a long time. It's not good for bookings. You don't want to do TV that way. Of course you see. But, um, anyway, I forgot. What did you ask me again?
1: <laughs> I don't know. Have a sip of wine. I think it's time for a sip of wine.
2: <laughs> no, no, no. So anyway, I was writing "Girl Friday" on retreat with Allison Davis, who taught me how to drink serre, and she might even be having one of these right now because she taught me how to drink and eat cheese and write. Huh? And Those uh, are all
0: very good skills.
2: I had abdominal surgery on a hernia I gave myself, but I was too busy trying to build all these things around me, and so I kind of put it off because I am impervious to pain.
0: Uh, <laughs> Another skill.
2: Right about that time, I started getting real angry about the shellacking I was taking about not wanting to be mixed up in all the diversity programs and crime fiction. I was doing just fine before I, I you know, I was, I was kicking, I was kicking some ass, just fine. We don't, we don't need to go put me in the Negro leagues. I'm already with Jackie Robinson in there. You know what I mean? I'm already in there. I, y- y'all nominated me for a bunch of awards, disqualified me for two. I don't need to go sit in the Negro bleachers, bro. It's over. It's 2020. Not doing it. Okay. And so I guess I had another book inside me, right? Because uh, my surgery got a little bad, and my abdo my abdominal area swelled up with like blood and stuff, and it <laughs> added like an extra couple of months to my recovery. And then I'm you know, sorry, I
1: didn't mean to laugh, but I was like, that's that's graphic for, and that's a mystery novel. No, no, Marvelous. it is.
2: It it is. It, I'm telling you, it was just like it was. It was like carrying around my editor when I was walking around to go to the bathroom. <laughs> it really was. It was like, seriously, it was like the world's opinion burdening me, but it's really just the sack I gotta carry around. No, so I just, I wrote a book that caught up with the times and then outpaced the times because yeah. uh, I'm kind of psychic, but like, I have to be because I'm black in America. Yeah. And I've seen this before. I lived through this before. I was born on the cusp of these things reoccurring before. Like, you know, if you remember, I got the, you know, uh, a cardinal, Coughlin or O'Malley or whatever, and he was, you know, like the Catholic League put on regular rural radio three times a week, the most racist, sexist, evil tele, uh, evil programming on the airwaves for anyone who had a radio and was bored. So you a black farmer and you living in the corner in some unincorporated town because you're trying to get out ahead of your competitors and stake your own claim, right? And then the only... Information that people who are like white and hiding and running for their own lives from like racial pogroms in mm-hmm. Russia, or you know, don't be a German in America in 1935. You the you the nigger now. You know what I mean? Like, hey, Nazi. You know what I mean? Try to try to show up in a middle class neighborhood in the Midwest and you got a German accent in 1951. Yeah. Try it. Try mm-hmm. it. They love a black person moving in next door to them over a German. But, like, at the same time, if you leave humanity in America alone long enough, we'll go from colored-only water fountains to nextdoor.com ID. And that's that. Wow. That's all we're taught. We look at huge parcels of land and carve them into little squares. We take natural shapes that Mother Earth herself has dictated for us to share, and we stamp squares out of them and say, put fences around them and buy guns if you want to. What do you think's gonna happen? So I'm always living in jeopardy, and I'm always feeling like I'm gonna get pulled off the street. And I'm always feeling like somebody like Trump is elected. They all look like Trump to me, and I ain't saying mm-hmm. that in relation to our current dilemma, because everybody's taking a good shellacking. Yeah everybody's been outside with the hot coming. It's 40 <laughs> below 0 for everybody in America right now. Now I can slip it in. See, I think the trick is you don't wait until white folks are happy with being associated with black folks or sharing a country and a heritage with black folks to deliver information about what's happening with black folks and folks that relate with us who can see it like they live like put the glasses on, right? And Mm -hmm. so you don't wait until everybody's feeling good. You don't wait until, you know, we've got a black Oscar winner or two. And then here comes this novel. You wait until folks want to know why the hell is what's happening, happening. And then you say, hey, dog, this is the play. And I guess, like, America started putting me through something. I could feel it. You got to have a sixth sense if you're a woman and you take the wrong job. And in the job interview, you can tell if somebody might get grabby. Mm-hmm. You know, you can, you can tell when to take your keys out to get in your car and when you leave them in your purse. Right. So you can tell if a book is right for you. And you can tell if your climate and your social area is starting to close in on you and what you believe in. Or not. So I'm black. America starts closing in around me about a few years before y'all to make certain the plan they got for y'all works on me. And then I was like, oh my God, it's happening again. Wow. And then I just took time to write from the point where I could break the story into two books. Uh, I, I thought I was writing Ace Bone Coon and then it became Ace Bone Coon and then Girl Friday, right? Like if you had a flow chart and I just couldn't understand it. And then six months after, man, and I turned it into Allison because she's my developmental editor the whole time. Hey Allison. And then I just it started syncing up. And then it was scary. So you know, I don't want to claim sentience of a greater ex, to a greater extent than anyone else, but it's just like, you know, finally I'm the frog in the pot of water that knows what the F is going on. Right. You did like I heard yeah. the I heard the that when, like, you would starting the burner on the stove,
1: <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, they're doing it again, they're doing not, it again, it's
2: not, it's not they're really doing not. it again, we out, we out, let's go, let's <laughs> go, and I'm, and I'm thinking that if we can just start, like, writing about these dirty little tricks and deceitful things where, you know, we get caught in the balance between the federal apparatus that supports all citizenry and the corporate apparatus that this that you know protects the almighty dollar you know we just got to make them remember we're here and see like you know when you can read ace bone on this it's not like you can lose chester Himes in the chicago public library basement this is forever now baby yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So right.
2: I'm, gonna, I'm gonna write these stories for like 10 15 more years and then ingram will make certain they stay forever and then it won't happen again right so if, and if we all do it right if yep. we all do it then we can just start showing people hey you knew better once because we wrote right. it in these books for you to know it's right
0: here cheers to that man cheers that that. You know, Cheers to that.
2: Okay. Again, right? all, all right.
1: Right. right so
0: is question in the bottle time Chris? question
1: in the bottle time this question is like when up. you get to the bottom of, <laughs> go ahead tell them kathy
0: Okay, so we, Danny, we like to ask all of the authors we get to talk to, the question the bottle, and these are the kind of questions that you might, you know, get to once you've gotten to the bottom of a bottle.
1: <laughs> They're just so, silly, but so we, if, we enjoy them. Oh. If you don't like it, you can pass, but just FYI. We'll pick another up. one, though. You gotta answer one of them.
2: Hey, listen, okay. my oldest daughter is in the church now. Should I tell her to not listen to this episode? Is, <laughs> yeah, about okay. is it about to get randy? Because I can go there. But I just got to check in. At I don't
1: I don't know, because this question could go either way.
2: Okay, okay. All right.
1: So what product from an infomercial have you been tempted to buy?
2: I'm going to do All right. So I'm going to do these. But I'm going to do these as if I'm running into, like, Daryl Atlantic in the elevator at MGM, and he actually wants to hear my ideas. So I'm going to go real fast. Okay. Okay. This is good. I'm stuck out in the suburbs after my dad died in 1981. I'm a young black man. I must have a really tight fade. Every other weekend, it's a rule. They'll kick you out of the NAACP if your wig ain't tight. <laughs> now I'm moving out to the burbs where they won't let a black man play baseball because they think we haven't done it yet. They're kind of stuck, you know, like most <laughs> folks in crime <crying> sure. <gasps> Whole Oh, clutch the pearls! Anyway, so I ain't had a haircut in a minute, and then I look like, you know, Juan Epstein, a Puerto Rican Jew. Black people can't tell I'm with them. White pe- people don't know why this tan child is not with his parents. Like, I got to do something. The haircut is the only indicator I'm Black American from the shot. <laughs> Ron Popeil came on, and they had a oh. dope flow thing. And I was going to do that flow-bee. The bee Because you don't understand, like, these curls, they just start going. I. They just start going these curls, right? But if I keep it dope, it's like I could style it black. I could be a little Puerto Rican. You know, I could part it. You know what I mean? I could be professional. <laughs> but man, when it's all just like, I'll, I'll start sticking the skittles out there and skeety bites, boy. And I begged my mother to let me go to Chicago on the metro train, the community train to get a cut. Now nah, you're going to have to learn how to survive out here. I got to get into better schools. I'm like, Mom, I need a that. and I straight up almost went and bought a Floby with like a, like a money order. Like I went to the, I went to the currency, <laughs> exchange, what we call the check cash in place, mm-hmm. currency exchange in the stock and oh, my God, mother would the to Beverly bank and get me a, a cashier's check. I'm going to get me a Floby. I'm going to do it. And I had this wish because you know, I overdo things, which I'm just telling you, yo, the Floby, <laughs> bring it back. When okay all right there's a few
1: things with covid that we should
2: bring back I <laughs> think about it just think about it and you know what you don't have to vacuum up the hair
1: <laughs> honestly That's look sick. at this keeps yeah. growing i'm like it's actually perfect little house people. on the prairie here
0: okay danny i have to admit that i i googled def jam
2: oh Oh no! oh no
0: oh yes i did
2: yes <laughs> i did
0: i watched the whole thing oh no i can tell you that you were i think the 10th comedian maybe you're part Oh of- uh, yeah
2: yeah i was uh I, okay so season <laughs> one it was just like you know the best comedians that they knew in the industry so far so you saw <laughs> folks that were working deaf comedy jam season one clean like anthony griffin a.j jamal so that's the hopscotch, right? Mm-hmm. But you're black, though, so you're not really working the role. Vegas don't have a lot of spots for you because George Wallace will never die, right? He just never. Oh. The blackest comedian for all the black comedians. You want to work Vegas, you got to wait till George Wallace stops drinking blood. So <laughs> him, and, him and Samuel L. Jackson, one time I was hanging out with Danny Glover and then I saw his car was on four flats. Samuel L. Jackson was running to an audition for the Avengers. I was like, you know, Danny, it's just sometimes how it works. Anyway. Three. It was like national auditions. The first comedians were like the famous guys, and then the, they asked the famous guys in season two to come back with like, you know, their, their mentees. Right, and then um, that's when I met. That's when I started like growing up. I was about eighteen, and uh, I fell in with Bernie Mac and wow. uh, L. Givens and Sheryl Underwood from The Talk on CBS. Mm -hmm. And that's how I got, like, my start. And it helped me, like, write my first, like, seven to nine. And so I was in season three, the result of Nationwide Audition, where it was, like, 600 dudes a city, eight cities to make, like, half. Wow. You know, so it's, I mean, basically, it's like a Black organized battle royale. (laughs) You you blindfold yourself, you put on one glove, and then you, like, punch Dave Chappelle in the face or something. I don't know, to get your spot (laughs) And uh um, okay but yeah that was it season three it was uh it was it was it was the groundbreaking year because HBO was really able to sell it for like ten more seasons after that. And it was a lot of pressure. I was nineteen. Wow. I was nineteen years old. Yeah, yeah. I was wow. wow, that's young. I lied. I lied to get on the show, I think. I Did you really?
0: Well yeah. you've you're clearly a storyteller from then to now. Yes. Right. <laughs> <Yeah. Woo. laughs> Chris, you gotta ask him about um
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I mean you've done obviously a lot of stuff and now you have a publishing house oh my gosh how are you doing that and Um, you know that's a lot different than everything else it's the business side not the artistic side so
2: well i'm from chicago so you get beat across the back if you don't work 20 hours a day right i'm not (laughs) i mean i just uh well first of all i had supply chain issues because i had a hot novel But because of like tweaks in like the Onyx database, I mean, nobody can find it, right? And Mm -hmm. I'm doing really well and I'm getting in all the right circles and I'm doing wonderful things. And you know, but I'm only meeting black folks when I'm invited to speak at a college or university. I do believe getting white folks' attention to be important. That's why I'm pretty good at it. And I put great time and care into getting white folks to pay attention. But I'm always doing so from my black center. And I'm always doing so with what I'm able to offer from my life and my world's appearance centered in Black American values, values that you'll understand to be American values if you just come hang out with me and do this Black-first, Black-led, Black-centric thing for a little while, which is, quite frankly, a whole lot different than what you're used to, which is everybody handling everything for the author, including telling them what to write if they Black or otherwise not approved and we've seen it a thousand and one times. It's the kind of thing that'll make Miles Davis take a gun into his record company and demand his master's back. So I own a publishing house the way if I wanted to eat good barbecue, I'd own my own shack. (laughs) I'm gonna eat it. All right. I will will just say (laughs) that I own a publishing house for the reason why anyone would because i can't and that yeah. if i do it claims space for me in ways that if i didn't own that publishing house the individual value of me as a private creator of art would be less valued and respected
1: so basically you are making art even though you have to do business to do it the business part is is worth it to you the extra hours the another 4 hours of the night it's worth right. it
2: yes yeah. yes because that book you have behind you came from a source that was supposedly barred to me because yeah. i didn't have enough titles and i didn't have enough money and they're not going to take you and it's a special special thing and i'm looking mm-hmm. and i'm being told no constantly by you know all of these powers that Realize they themselves aren't Black American, but somehow want to be the arbiters of what Black American authenticity should be. Wow. But that book that you have behind you is authentically me. It's about where I grew up, it's about who raised me, it's about folks who come up from the, the Great Migration. I have Uh, I'm a product of folks that go all the way to Surrey, UK in 1518. And we was shacking up with Negroes and making illegitimate miscegenated babies in New Louisiana in 1618, (laughs) right? My grandfather had to hold off the Chicago outfit. And we talking about Sam G. and Connor, Johnny Torrio and them back in the 1950s. But some dude who ain't never left Los Angeles from his backyard says it ain't mystery right now I'm doing. It ain't crime right now I'm doing. If I didn't own my own imprint, you wouldn't have that book because everybody could have had it. Now, I was everybody's diversity imprint, darling. I was everybody's, awe. you made a good thing happen. I was with Down and Out, and I made it work. I made them notice me and look at me. But then, you know, the same guys who are published with all of the, and imprinted at the same warehouses, everything else. It doesn't matter if it says this one or this imprint or that imprint. They all sitting on the same shelf in an Ingram warehouse somewhere getting dusty. If no one goes out and sells them and I'm selling books like nobody's business. I'm on the same bestseller list as these dudes. And these guys are offering me no advance. Like, you're an author just like me. I'm kicking your ass in book sales, but you got the temerity to say I'm not legitimately published to go on in my career. So even though I'm an author just like you, you're going to take my book for no money? Oh, honey, I've been a 30-year member of the Screen Actors Guild. We're <sighs> some crooks in this game. I'm going to have to start my own business to keep from being a crook. Wow. And you can probably hear about some folks who thought they was going to come in here and take a turn doing business with me. But my grandfather, John Gardner, who owned two newspapers, he taught me very well. He said, Danny, if you hire the wrong white person, they'll think you hired them to be the boss of you. <laughs>
0: Hence we
2: have you know what I mean?
0: Bronzeville Books. There
2: Bronzeville you go. Books. It's a book, right? Whoever bought a book for who the publisher is. But if the publisher loved you, loved the author, loved the book, Gave you a value for your money. Made certain it shipped to you on time. Made certain it had all the quality indicators of any other book, and made certain the product was available and advertised in the same venues as everywhere else. That means there's room in it, room for it in the marketplace. And some other author's decision, just because he got an Ingram Spark account, shouldn't get in the way of me and my market progress.
1: Right. It's a very subjective field we're finding, so it's really, really hard.
2: Yeah. I come from. I come from like the project management professional certification. I come from like eight years at Anderson, Arthur Anderson and Anderson Consulting. I I come from government. Like, I come from my grandfather, ran the fire department. Like, there are standards, practices, rules, ethics. But you know what? If you want people to stop getting their boobs and their butts felt on, and both has happened to me in a BoucherCon elevator from time to time, I must say. then if you want to change that, you got to start paying people more than $25 a short story. Right. Nobody wants to talk about increasing that $25 a short story. No, so,
1: it's it's uh, it's a it's right? not a way to make money, I tell you. It's
2: not a way to make anything. So, you know, it's just, I, I mean, listen, I gave the going industry, I was everybody's fast black friend for five years. I did every noir at the bar around the world. But when you book me to something 2,000 miles away and you know I'm willing to come from Los Angeles on my own dime and you still can't order books before I get there and you know if I bring books into Canada, they're going to detain me for an hour. You're just trying to tell me stay my black ass home is what you're doing because you didn't take care of it because you think I'm eager to fall all over myself and impress you guys. And it's like, hey, the authenticity ain't because I'm black. The authenticity is that I cared about what I was writing about. And I wasn't trying to impress people to get in, I was trying to show people who I really am. So maybe it won't be the first time to ever see a black person. And yet, you know, like, all this other stuff gets involved in it. But right. that book you holding, eight white people helped me get that book to you on time. Right. And nobody had any beeps or problems. Wow. And every one of you Floridians that everybody tells me I should be scared of, <laughs> you all are the only ones that picked up the phone and told me about my market value and potential. Bronzeville what. No. I'm tired, right tired. 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 of I, I was born in Bronzeville. I was raised in Bronzeville. My grandfather was one of the men that helped them go from turning, you know, like treating and regarding migration bound Chicago from the black belt to Bronzeville. Like these wow. guys and gals who ran the city, these journalists, these newspaper owners, these black business owners, they all got together. They said, we got to do something because they treat us like we're not here, but we pay taxes and we have rights and they know if we get mad, we can fight back and ain't nobody going to take us because we angry, bro. Ain't nobody going to take us. So we got to stop this. We got to stop calling it lowercase black belt. We got to start showing them we value this shit. Mm-hmm. And my grandfather and men like him like the sing stacks and great noble, like newspaper men and women back then who control all the black media for America from Chicago, they said, we're not black. Nothing is black that exists. It's bronze. Look at us. You know, we are a bronze people. We came and manifested from the bronze age. You know, so that's I, where I, the
1: name of the publishing like, company came. Exactly. It's my
2: neighborhood. It's my, it's my hospital I was born in. It's, it's the schools oh, wow. I learned how to read. I'm trying to give you all traditions that are right. originated in the Blackness but belong to you because you're an American. And that's right. why you got that book over there. Who cares who published it, even really? though he's pretty handsome. <laughs> okay,
0: you know what, Christy, we have to do with Danny before we go is ask yes. him the question.
2: Yes, this is the question
1: that we ask all our mysterious foodies out there. That's what we call our listeners. Cool.
2: It's a, I like to oh, eat. Oh, and I like question. mysteries.
1: Um, it's which of your char- characters would you like to share a meal with and what would it be?
2: If it's a if it's a girl, I would like to take Molly Duffy out for a hamburger.
0: For a hamburger?
2: Yeah. <laughs> Cheeseburger? Just hamburger? Except, except uh, Mayretha and Gladys' The Waitress is like, I can't get her off my mind. And uh, uh, Margaret McAlpin scares me too. But all y'all white girls do when you take notice of me. So I gotta be cool. Y'all cute sometimes. I gotta be careful. And um Let's see, but I would like to have dinner with Uncle Buster because he is the analogue of all of my mom's uncles. Aww. And so yeah. when my, when my dad died and my mom couldn't take care of me anymore because she's just destroyed afterwards. Uh all of all of the Gantt family, all my uncles. Because see my mama my mama had uncles who were like cousin age, because like, you know, we're from Louisiana. We never stop screwing. Like <laughs> my mother had like thirty-five aunts and uncles, right? And so like mm-hmm. Uncle Buster is the analog of everybody who ever looked after me after my parents died. So
1: that is the best answer.
2: If I had dinner with Uncle Buster, I'd really be in the room with like eight people who made certain that I kept my parents' promises after they passed away. So that would be dope. Because they all drink and smoke, some of them smoke weed. It would be fun.
1: It'd be fun. (laughs) Sounds like it.
2: I still have them too, some of them. So it's cool. Like I got to send them the book. It's fun. Oh,
1: okay. that's wonderful.
0: Um, If our listeners want to reach out, get more information on the book, more information on Bronzeville, where's the best place for them to get that? Like your website or social media?
2: Uh, well, I'll tell you what, if you're checking in today, go to the Bronzeville Books Facebook page and hit like and then you'll see all of the great things other authors than me are saying about my novel. And so um and then uh, but you'll also get plugged in on all of the developments that we have. Like so if you want to know about uh, updates to the Bronzeville Books website and web store, the Facebook page and the Instagram is probably going to be your friend. And if you want to get in on the app when it launches in a few months, uh, the website at bronzevillebooks.com is your friend. And um, I am going to hold my personal author page stuff for later because I'm trying to steer folks to Bronzeville proper. Okay. So I'm going to update the Bronzeville Books webpage with all the cool Danny Gardner stuff. too. Great. And then I'll split them up to make it easy for everybody. So it's just bronzevillobooks.com for the juicy fat meat. If you want to buy books, just go to your local bookseller.
1: I was going to say, it's on the shelves now. Everybody needs to go out and get it. And right. thank you so much, Danny.
2: You're welcome. Cheers. Thanks,
0: uh, Cheers. Great to talk to you, Danny. Thank you for thank joining you so us. much.
1: Bye-bye, That's y'all. Bye. Bye. Thanks. Thanks for joining us on today's adventure. Subscribe to our podcast on our website, gameofbookspodcast.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you liked what you heard, you can give us a five-star rating or review. You can also subscribe on YouTube, where you can watch and listen. On gameofbookspodcast.com. You can find all the information about what we talked about on this episode, and you can sign up for our newsletter or enter our fun contests and giveaways. We also post our stories and links on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Hope to see you there. I can guarantee you we had fun today. And we hope you did too. Cheers.